Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring American metaphysics in the 1800s. My guest is Ronnie Pontiac, who worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years at the Philosophical Research Society in, in Los Angeles. He has produced award-winning documentaries and has written articles for several esoteric magazines. He is author of American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. Ronnie lives in Los Angeles, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Ronnie. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Well, thank you so much for having me back again. I really appreciate it. I'm delighted to be back with you. Your book is, is so rich, even though it's a, a thick volume, it really embodies an encyclopedia of knowledge. Today, we'll be focusing in on the, the 19th century. And I guess, in, as far as America is concerned, the major event of the 19th century, which it really seems to have shaped the whole century, is undoubtedly the Civil War. And uh, I know it had a big impact in, on metaphysical thinking in many different ways. Definitely. If I could, I'd like to establish some context for it. And a good person to establish that contact through the context through is uh, Francis Wright, mm. who was born in 1795 and who, as a child, found a book about the history of the American Revolution in her grandfather's library and fell in love with the idea of this country that was devoted to liberty. And she talks about how she felt anxiety because she saw an atlas that did not have America listed in it and quickly went through all the atlases in her grandfather's library looking for a modern one to see if America had survived. And she said she felt great relief when she saw that it had. She inherited money quite young and just about 20 years old, a little bit older, she and her sister traveled to America. And this was a time where people were still in love with the concept of America. The revolution had been won. And there were so many literate people. She later wrote about this, how, how really amazed she was that, for instance, on the ship that she took to come to America, the sailors all were talking about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and they, they were carrying copies of these things with them. And she said that when she arrived in America, which she fearlessly toured with her sister pretty much by themselves, even going into the wilderness, that everywhere she went, she found what she thought were these really noble people. And even she said that in the farm country and what was then the far west, people were talking about the Constitution and were highly literate and were reading philosophy. So she was thrilled. To her, America was this, this rebirth of, of something like Athens, although she was well-educated enough to know that Athens uh, was, was problematic as a democracy. What happened was 
she became quite popular as a speaker. And she made friends with important people like Thomas Jefferson and Monroe and the Marquis de Lafayette. And she was trying to inspire America to be the best country that it could be. And then her travels took her to the South and she ran headlong into the institution of slavery. And she couldn't understand it. She, she thought that it was, it was an absolute betrayal of the principles of America. And she immediately devoted herself to one of the very earliest abolitionists to, to getting in front of the public and speaking about how this had to be cured for the democracy to survive. So we see even here in the 1820s, someone who comes forward and sparks this awareness of this division. And she said that, for instance, Jefferson, a slave owner himself, as we know, shared her concern that slavery was going to be a real problem going forward for this young country. I'm not going to go too far into her life. It's fascinating. She was uh, the first woman in America to address a mixed gender crowd. She uh, at times could draw audiences of 5,000 people into an auditorium, but there would be 10,000 people outside the auditorium in New York City who were protesting her and throwing things at her and at her followers when they left the auditorium. She, she lived quite a dramatic life. Unfortunately, her attempt to create a commune where she could uh, demonstrate that there was a way to take those who had been brought here against their will and enslaved and give them literacy and the skills that they would need to live as free people was an abject failure, possibly partially, certainly, because Andrew Jackson, who was advising her about this, advised her to buy land from a friend of his that was really a swamp. And so she caught fever, others caught fever. It was really a place where her experiment would fail. And I guess Andrew Jackson knew that when he recommended it. So through her prism, we can see this division that was already festering. And as the Civil War approached, we see that in the North, spiritualism has become all the rage. And in fact, just before the Civil War, when a poll is taken, it's found that that 10% of all Northerners identify themselves as spiritualists. That's a huge number of people, especially when you consider that only 25% identified themselves as members of any Christian denomination. In the South, therefore, feeling afflicted by Northern industrialism and threatened by the, the, the approach that it was taking, and also obviously feeling very threatened by the abolitionist movement, in the South, newspapers wrote about the North as being devil-possessed, that all of this playing around with, with speaking to the dead was just necromancy, and clearly behind industrialization and spiritualism must be the devil. And this took on the connotations of a holy war in the South, just as in the North, it was also seen in a sense as a holy war to rid the country of the curse of slavery. In the Civil War, we find generals, for example, who are deeply involved in esotericism. One of the most famous of all Masons, the author of, of the most important book in Scottish Rite, Morals and Dogma, Albert Pike, was a Confederate general. 
he writes about slavery as an institution in that book. And his advice is to to be very kind to to the enslaved people and to to teach them in the way that you would teach someone who was going to apprentice with you. But he doesn't challenge the institution. On the other side, we have someone like Abner Doubleday, who fired the first shot on the Union side at Fort Sumter when the Civil War began, who was a theosophist who uh, had had written uh, translations of Elephas Levi's works on ceremonial magic, who had vast interest in the esoteric. And in fact, while I was writing this book, some of his letters came up for auction and in them, he had he had carefully taken notes for, from Paracelsus and Pernetti and all these famous alchemists and esotericists in European history. And then we also have uh, Abner. You know what? I just confused that. I'm sorry. That was Abner Doubleday I was just talking about. Somebody who was uh, allegedly the inventor of baseball, but really wasn't. He was the one who translated Alephus Levi and uh and was deeply into the esoteric and who fired that first shot at fort sumter the other general is is ethan allen hitchcock who was a friend of lincoln's and who anonymously published books in which he described alchemical theories and also fairy tales as actually being hidden hermetic philosophy and in some ways he anticipated the approach that jung took to alchemy and to fairy tales and folk tales. So we had deep esotericism going on on both sides. And then we have this phenomenon of spiritualism, which was really burgeoning into, into full visibility at that time. And these were driving much of the feelings about uh, how this war could not be settled. It, it, it's something where a compromise couldn't be found. And I would suggest that we're, we're still suffering repercussions from that to this day when we look at the intense divide that our country is still going through. I would agree with you about the re-emergence of many of the same currents that were active 150, 160 years ago in America, the North-South divide, uh, uh, among others. Now, back to Francis Wright for a moment. What a fascinating character. You devoted a, a lengthy chapter in your book to her in which you describe her as the Red Harlot. And I, I think there seems to be a, a kind of fusion in many metaphysical circles with the idea of sexual liberty. And and she apparently uh, was involved to maybe a small extent in in that movement, but it was one that the the critics of metaphysics would use to tarnish the people they considered their enemies. Very much so. She she spoke of free love. She thought that women should be able to get divorced. That women should be able to own property. She wanted full equality for women, and she wanted to to change the way that, that gender was functioning in American society. And so at first, when she was a young woman and America was still in its sort of intellectual infancy of, of being enamored, sort of the honeymoon stage, if you will, uh, with its own democracy, she was a, a big hero, somebody who attracted adoring audiences 
and whose eloquence was stunning. Uh, she was a very tall uh, woman with auburn hair that she cut rather short. And uh, she would, would deliver these powerful statements from the stage that people found riveting. But as the Republic got older, she found not too long after that, as another generation matured and as industrialization began to take root, that all of what she had loved about that first visit to America disappeared. And suddenly people were just about making money and they didn't really care about those issues. And when that happened, her popularity divided. There were people who were strongly Christian and who felt that her talking about free love, and she was also one of the first people to come out publicly as an atheist in America in a public way. And so they viewed her as a threat to the morals of America, and they started to really insult her and to talk about how she resembled a fury or, or how she really looked like a man or talked like a man because of her eloquence that she, was, she wasn't feminine, and so therefore women should not listen to her. And they also said that she left in her wake broken families and broken lives, people who had believed these ideas. At the same time, though, we have a very valuable eyewitness report from none other than Walt Whitman about her. He was absolutely enamored of her, and he wrote that that of all the women that he'd ever seen, that she made him glow, feel it. He called it glowingly. He felt glowingly about her and her inspiration and her goodness. And he said, this was a woman who devoted all her time to public good. And when she had private time, she was devoting it to private good. And he was obviously very much inspired by her, uh, her eloquence. And he referred to her as the noblest of all the Romans in an admiring way. But he also said that she was too good and too smart a woman to be accepted for long. And then he reported that soon the masses turned against her and she was maligned in vicious ways that he felt were, were really untrue. Well, since you brought up Walt Whitman, I guess it's important to point out that, at least to my way of thinking, he, he sort of embodied the poetic voice of the American transcendental movement, which predated the Civil War by a little bit and, and was also, and still is, enormously important in uh, uh, American intellectual history. Very much so. Very influential on all fronts. Uh, an inspiration to everything from theosophy to the resurgence of Platonism in America in the second half of the 19th century. And Whitman was sometimes said to have, have taken Emerson to the next step in his poetry. And Whitman was also a great uh, inspiration to Buck, who wrote the book about cosmic consciousness in which he looked back into literature, but also uh, to people that he knew personally to try to describe this experience that some human beings were having, including Whitman, uh, of what he called cosmic consciousness. And Whitman, he said, in his writing, really gave cosmic consciousness a form that anybody could experience. And there have been comparisons to Emerson in his famous writing about nature, where he talks about how he became a transparent eyeball, 
and he just could see everything all around him and feel at oneness with it. And this this kind of cosmic consciousness informed Whitman's poetry deeply and would reemerge in the New Age movement in the in the 1980s when Buck's cosmic consciousness became a very popular book again. We owe an enormous debt to the uh, transcendental movement, and uh, I think fortunately that it, debt is generally acknowledged. Pretty much every university or college English department has a course on the transcendentalists, I believe, and uh, I can't help but mention William James. I consider him to be foremost amongst the children of the American transcendentalists and uh, the father of religious studies, the father of American pragmatic philosophy, the father of American psychology, and most importantly, from my point of view, the father of American psychical research. Absolutely. His varieties of religious experience as a bedrock book in, in all these areas of study. And, and also he, his own experiences as he explored uh, mediums and mediumship led him to come up with a concept that I referred to in the book, which is he said that when you're trying to prove the existence of a white crow, it doesn't do any good to point out that there are so many black crows. You you have to find an example of a white crow. And he felt that he had found examples of white crows, which were mediums who were doing inexplicable channeling, that were able to know things that there was no way of establishing whether they knew them or not. Uh, in other words, there was uh, no physical reason for them to know these things, no connection to the people that they, that they were reading. And, he found some excellent examples of that. But always in these areas, if you dig hard enough, there are, there are questions raised. I've often wondered if this is part of the deal when dealing with the other side, is that, that the, the, the doubt, the question mark, needs to remain there for this world to function as the schoolroom that it is in some way. And so one of the best cases that William James found to, as a white crow turned out to actually have a connection with his personal life because her maid was a very good friend of William James's maid. And we don't know, we have no evidence that one maid was talking to the other about personal issues that came up, but it's possible that one maid got the information from the other maid. So these, these doubts are always there, but in the way that he approached this information and, and his, his incredibly, uh, diverse and and the breadth of his approach really i think was unequaled until the dawn of this new era of american metaphysical religion studies which started very sluggishly in the 1980s or so with the writings of harold bloom and later really exploded in the 2000s his spirit of inquiry seems to have been revived, and that's a wonderful thing. I and I would take issue with you about the, the question of doubts. Uh, yes, there may have been a connection with William James made, but William James initiated uh, a whole series of studies of the medium Leonora Piper, and she's the one he referred to as his white crow, uh, the woman who would disprove the idea that all crows are black, or in other words, 
word psychic phenomena, paranormal phenomena can't exist. It's impossible. And uh, there were many, many studies uh, independent of the information she initially provided William James about uh, the death of one of his children, uh, uh, which got him interested in her in, in the first place. But uh, the st- scientific work he initiated went well beyond that. And and it, while it is true, critics will always try to find an, an element of doubt. Uh, when you look at the accounts that the critics bring up to challenge mediums like Leonora Piper. Uh, uh, Their arguments are uh, beneath the critics themselves, well below their normal level of discourse. And this enraged William James. He uh, wrote in in Science, in the pages of Science back in about 1903, uh, very angry uh, responses to the people who had uh, criticized his work with Leonora Piper. I think it's it's a uh, unequivocal truth that that when you study these matters, you will run into stories that are are proof. And yes, as you pointed out, there will always be people who will criticize it and will find reasons to suspect something. And a good example of this, I think, He's a little bit toward the beginning of the 1900s, but he's he's very close to the 1890s as a professor by the name of Wyman. And this man had very little interest in these matters. He was visiting New York and there was a wealthy family that was exploring seances. And they had a medium who wasn't a particularly literate guy. And he was speaking in what people seemed to think was Chinese, but no one could understand it. Now, Professor Wyman was a world expert on ancient Chinese dialects. So they really wanted him to come to the seance and they kind of tricked him to do it. They, they invited him over to dinner and then there was a seance and he sat through it with his wife. And not only was Chinese spoken, and we'll talk about that for a moment in a moment, but also other rather rare languages, early forms of Gaelic and other things that he recognized were spoken by this medium. And this piqued his interest. And then the Chinese speaker came through and he said at first he couldn't really understand the dialect and it made him suspicious. And then it dawned on him that he was hearing the purest Confucian Chinese dialect that he'd ever heard. And now he could understand it. And so not only did this entity speak in this refined form of Chinese that had been absent from the planet for, for years, but he said that, I mean, hundreds of years, but he said that also that he was able to ask questions about the works of Confucius, about things that scholars didn't have answers for. And the answers that he received were not only uh, delivered, for instance, he would begin reading uh, uh, something from the Analects and and the entity would finish the sentences, would, would actually know the ancient Chinese for this Confucian writing, and then would explain why it was, it was mistaken by the scholars with very satisfactory answers. And Wyman also pointed out that there were really only about three, maybe five people in the whole world who would have any knowledge of this Chinese dialect. 
So to me, that's a great example of these these inexplicable events that occur within the world of spiritualism. And yet there were skeptics who tried to say, well, he must have just been too enthusiastic about it. He was imagining that he was understanding the Chinese, but he probably was just projecting his own knowledge of Chinese onto this gibberish. Now, there's no way that these two accounts exist together in, in the world. And Wyman actually wrote a book about his experience, he said, because he was so tired of telling the story at dinner parties. But it was also partially because he just wanted to, to leave a record of what had happened. And he thought science should be pursuing studies of this because how could this possibly have happened? So I agree with you. I mean, there, there is definitely proof. I think I overstated it. But there is always the skepticism that travels with it. I think the key point uh, that I hope our viewers retain is that the 1800s in, in the United States and in England and in Europe as well is when the scientific study of the paranormal really got off the ground. And uh, William James in the United States was, was a key figure. The uh, British founders of the Society for Psychical Research, uh, of which William James eventually became president. Uh, were also very important. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, Victoria Woodhall. I want to make sure we don't forget her in, a, in our discussions, a, a key character in my mind. I agree with you. She's, she's a wonderful uh, example of American metaphysical religion, I think. She is born just before the Civil War. Her father is, is a snake oil salesman and was abusive to both of his daughters. And he found that both of his daughters had a knack for plausible psychic uh, diagnosis of illnesses. And so he immediately took them out on the circuit with him to help him in his hustle. But they quickly understood that they were doing something that was working and that people, there was a demand for it. So they, they got rid of their dad. And they went out on their own as mediums and became quite successful. And in fact, so successful that one of their clients who was uh, an industrial uh, titan by the name of Vanderbilt was so impressed that he set up Victoria and her sister to be the first female stockbrokers on Wall Street. And they ran a, a respected firm there. And with the money that they made, Victoria also launched a muckraking newspaper. She became a, a public speaker who was very popular. And like Frances Wright before her, she championed free love, divorce, property rights for women, the right to vote. And she was also uh, teaching that, that, that the genders should both be able to experience sexual pleasure, that it was not sinful. Uh, and going back to Frances Wright, by the way, she was also the first American to write about sexuality being something that should be uh, pleasurable and enriching and not being sinful and shameful. So now Victoria Woodhull, who was partially inspired by, by Frances Wright's writings at, at, at points in her career, she was one of the first women to address Congress. And she gave this very stirring speech. And she later said that the reason the speech was so eloquent was because she was channeling the great Athenian orator Demosthenes. 
And she exemplifies this, this crux or this nexus rather of, of how spiritualism, abolitionism, and, and the suffragette movement all combined and they were all encouraging each other. And in the case of Victoria, she was all three. And so we see many spiritualists moving over into abolitionists and we see abolitionists moving into spiritualism. And so together, this was a kind of liberation movement where people of color and women were, were finding through spiritualism a way to gain power in society. And it was a liberation movement that was trying to, to free society from the heritage of things like the institution of slavery, but also uh, of the way that institutionalized religion had marginalized or allowed the marginalization of women and of people of color. So now we had uh, books published, for instance, like Antiquities Unveiled, where like every famous famous popes and famous philosophers and famous kings and famous generals who had all passed on were all saying in this book through mediums that they had been wrong about Christianity and that, in fact, spiritualism is the truth. Very popular style of writing at that time. And so this was a, a, an exciting and, and vibrant time for people who were seeking to apply the principles of American democracy in their lives in ways that, that it had not been applied before. Now, Victoria, eventually, she ran into trouble on a couple of fronts. One was that she was actually a good woman who had the resources to support uh, a former husband who had severe mental illness issues, uh, an ex-boyfriend and a new husband, and sometimes under the same roof. And when this came out, it was extremely scandalous. And part of the reason that it came out the way it did was that she had gone after the most popular preacher in America and had published stories in her newspaper about how he had this affair on the side. So the media that was supportive of him jumped on the story of her own life with a vengeance. And she was eventually, uh, like Francis, greatly ostracized, even the founders of the of the feminist movement, Susan B. Anthony, for example, uh, when asked about her, said that she was immoral and uh, someone that shouldn't be trusted. And she eventually had to leave America because the pressure was so great. And she wound up marrying an, an English lord and living the rest of her life as known as a very kind and charitable woman, very noble of bearing, no one knew anything about how she had been a traveling medium, how she had addressed Congress with Demosthenes speaking through her, or how she had had a, a stock brokerage that was run on her channeling and, and on her advice from spirit. So she's a, a really amazing example of reinvention and, and seizing freedom and, and how all of these, these these currents were crossing each other. I'll say one more thing about her. I think really illustrates her. She declared herself a candidate for presidency. I believe the first female candidate, even though she wasn't old enough to legally run. 
and then declared Frederick Douglass as her running mate. And she didn't even ask him for permission when she did this. But but he was going to be the vice presidential candidate. And he's an interesting character, too, talking about the 19th century, because we think of him generally in history he's seen as this upstanding uh, Christian, you know, very, very, uh, to our view from today, not a very controversial figure, although at the time, of course, he was really a revolutionary. But if you look at his writing, he's always making these subtle references to a root. And this was a root that he was given when he was still enslaved and he was battling with a slave master whom he eventually overpowered and ran away from to freedom. He was given this route by an African practitioner of, of African arts of, of esoterica. And it was the famous uh, High John the Conqueror route. And so he never blatantly came out and said that he would care, he carried this route all his life, but he did. And so he, he had respect for the African traditions and was in his own personal life using them, but didn't feel that, that if he was, uh, honest about it, that there would be a good reaction from the people that he was trying to influence and inspire. You do point out in your book that the 19th century was full of various religious amalgamations, particularly varieties of Christianity that incorporated theosophy or spiritualism in, in one way or another, and also several uh, attempts to write new Bibles. Yes. Well, here's a, a good example, I think, of of how this is how this led into the whole civil war mentality. You've got a fellow like Phineas Quimby, fascinating person who was really at the heart of the New Thought movement and the Mind Cure movement. And Quimby his basic idea, for your listeners who may not know of him, was what was called a talking cure. He believed that if you could be fully aware of your spiritual self, if your soul came to, to attainment of full awareness, that there would be no room for illness in your body. And he believed that all illness was the result of wrong thinking, that we delude ourselves somehow into these experiences, and then our delusion is magnified. So to give an example, one of his famous cases was a person who was diagnosed with a heart problem. And Quimby said to him, when did you first notice the problem? What were you doing? And the man said, well, I reached for my wallet, which I keep in my breast pocket, and it wasn't there. And then that's the first time that I experienced this discomfort in my heart. And then Quimby said, and then you went and you told your family members and they were worried for you and told you to go to a doctor. And then you started to think about it constantly. What if something's wrong? And then you went to a doctor and the doctor told you, indeed, there is something wrong. And that scared you more. And Quimby would say, but this is all nonsense. This is just fear and ignorance. And if you awaken to the Christ within you, you will be healed. And this guy understood it, and he claimed to be completely healed. There were thousands of these testimonials about Quimby, of, of just remarkable healings. And 
there was perhaps some shady side to him that has come out with recent scholarship. Uh, he very likely did not write the books that are given under his name. They're probably written by Emma Ware, who was a very eloquent writer and was his secretary and assistant. And they certainly capture his ideas and his conversation. But this was very common in the history of American metaphysical religion, women doing the work, but men winding up taking full credit without the women even being acknowledged. And, and many of the women were happy to do this. Now, he was a big inspiration to Mary Baker Eddy, who, of course, started the Church of Christian Science. And this became a, a worldwide movement fairly quickly. And, and so much so that Mark Twain was jealous of her, of her fame. And, and she is an example. If you, if you consider how she looked to, to the people in the South. Now, this is post-Civil War when she reaches her maximum power. But of course, we're, we're going through the Reconstruction era and there's a lot of suspicion they're essentially looking at her and, and saying, see, this is the problem with the North. This is a woman who has declared that all the Christian faith, all the churches that have come before are wrong. And that, in fact, the Bible is a scientific book that teaches us how to heal ourselves. And that's what its real purpose is, which is an outrageous statement for someone who is, is deeply committed to a more traditional form of Christianity. And so Quimby, who had this wonderful uh, saying that, that to me is, is just one of the greatest uh, meditation sentences about the nature of healing, he said that, that the soul, how do I word this, that the body, when it is healthy, is experiencing the eternity of the soul. So the soul is eternal. The body is made up of all these bits of matter that have to be so finely organized and then has to keep functioning when everything around it is, is essentially pulling it toward entropy, toward, toward dissolving itself. And it ultimately it will be dissolved and all things return to the sand, as it were. But when the soul is, 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 has created a body and when the soul is, is really living in that body with its full awareness, then there is no room for sickness. And all of the bits of us, the, the organs, the cells, everything, all the, the millions and millions of, of pieces of a human body that must all cooperate, have that harmony and have that persistence through time because of the eternity of the soul. I think that's just beautiful. I agree. That is uh, wonderful. It seems to me that uh, probably to some extent that teaching became distorted in Christian science and in other movements akin to Christian science with the idea that you should never see a doctor, that all healing can take place at the spiritual level. Uh, I suspect people have died unnecessarily uh, because of uh, pushing that theory to the extreme. Well, that was also one of the complaints uh, about Quimby. When modern scholars began to look into his life and at contemporary accounts, they found two disturbing things about him. One was 
that like many an American male of the time, uh, he wasn't just talking attractive women out of their their illnesses. He was trying to talk them out of their corsets often and could get a little aggressive about it. And also there were cases of, you know, sad instances of children, for example, who he was healing from afar. And he had testimonials of healings that took place at great distances, but sometimes they didn't work. And so one scholar found this, this sad tale of a, of a child who was blaming himself because he wasn't getting better because Quimby was trying to heal him and he must not be believing enough. And so it, it tormented him even more than the illness he was suffering. So there were instances like that where the 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 effect didn't didn't have the positive influence that one would hope. But on the other hand, we have literally thousands of testimonials and newspaper articles about Quimby's successes, some of them very dramatic, involving uh, limbs that no longer worked. Or uh, some of it reminds me of, um, for example, there's a story told about, uh, I believe it's Michael Meyer, who was a famous uh, German physician for a Paracelsian physician around the time of the Rosicrucians um, when the world was going into this kind of beginning of the 30 years war. And, and he was said by contemporaries to have healed the daughter of one of the nobles that he served from a broken bone. And she left a, a message about this, a, a letter about it, in which she said that she had fallen off a horse, her, her bone had been broken, and, and the doctors were very concerned because it was a severe break and that he had come over, he'd put certain salve on it, he'd put uh, some kind of a cloth on it and made certain movements and did all sorts of things. And that when he lifted off the cloth, the bone break was gone and the pain was gone. So we, we don't know what that was, what, you know, what was going on there. But, but most of those kinds of efforts, whether it's you know, few successful and many unsuccessful, we're, we're all inspired by the example of Jesus in the Bible. And that's certainly what the influence was on Quimby. If I recall correctly, Mary Baker Eddy had been one of his patients. She was, you're right. Yeah. So in, in a way, this would be a reversal of the idea that the men take the credit for everything the women do, because although Quimby is well known, he, his fame is nothing compared to Mary Baker Eddy's. That's an excellent point. Very true. She is an exception. And uh, there is some wonderful writing by Mark Twain about her. Uh, she, he was very uh, pointed and funny when, when dealing with her, but his jealousy is quite clear. She had, at one time, well over a thousand temples and uh, all over the world, and, and this was a powerful, influential movement. Well, I think we should also talk about Platonism in the 19th century in America. Uh, you point out, and, and we mentioned this in our previous discussion, what a vast movement it had become. It's fascinating. This is how I basically started on this book, because when I worked for Manley Hall, uh, he would meet with me for lunch often in the vault because I was doing a bibliography and I had to be looking at these rare books and manuscripts and I had a lot of questions. And so one day I saw this big leather tome on a bottom shelf and it, it had written on it the Platonist. And I thought, what is that? I thought it might be a Thomas Taylor book or something, a famous translator 
of uh, Greek philosophy who influenced Shelley and Keats and Blake. And so he said, oh, that's a good one. You should pick it up and look at it. So I picked it up and I opened it and it was a newspaper of all things, a newspaper called The Platonist that was published around the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral in St. Louis when St. Louis was still a cow town. And I was filled with questions and he really couldn't answer many of them because he didn't know much about it. It was really a mystery what this newspaper was and how it came to be. And uh, to me, it was such an idiosyncratic creation. Uh, it just captured my imagination, started me on this path of trying to find out who was behind the Platonist. And that led to all the stories that, that are, are now in that book. And it turned out that the principal person behind it was a fellow by the name of Thomas Johnson. He had been deeply influenced by Emerson as a young man and was part of the generation that, unlike the generation before them who found Emerson to be radical and, and despicable, this generation fell in love with his ideas. And it was actually a passage of Emerson's where he talks about Plato, Plotinus, Proclus, and Iamblichus, uh, the great Neoplatonists who followed Plato, and who were really at the heart of Western esotericism, that, that he became a translator of these, these incredible writers. And uh, his newspaper was devoted to his own translations and also to translations by Thomas Taylor of these, these important writers. But he also included uh, writing about the Sufis. So the Platonist was the first time in American journalism where there was any writing about Sufism. And he also included Abner Doubleday's translation of Elephas Levi's uh, works on ceremonial magic. And it turned out that Thomas Johnson was a mayor and a bank president in a small town outside St. Louis that was called Osceola, still there. And in fact, his library is still there and can be visited. And he had a wonderful library. Uh, one of the stories about him that, that I find interesting is that he went looking for tarot cards in America at that time, and he was unable to find a single deck in America. So it shows you how rare the tarot was at, at, at one time, even as late as the early 1960s. In an interview I did with Mary Kay Greer, a great writer on tarot, she said that she had a terrible time finding a, a deck in Florida at that time. So now, of course, they're so common and there's thousands and thousands of decks. Johnson was greatly uh, supported by Bronson Alcott and by Emerson and by the, the New England Transcendentalists uh, who loved his translations and who turned to him for explanations of subtleties in writers like Proclus, who is quite complex. And Johnson kept this newspaper going through a couple of editions, and he was part of a movement that included what were called Plato Clubs and were led mostly by a fellow by the name of Hiram K. Jones, a physician who loved Plato and loved talking about Plato. And one of the big highlights at, at the Concord School that the Transcendentalists ran was these long four or five hour speeches, these lectures, that Hiram would give about Plato. And it said that people would come and listen for an hour, then they would leave and they would go 
on a boat and, and kind of float around for a while and then come back and listen some more. And he also engaged in debates with uh, German educated philosophers uh, who were into Hegel and had a very different view of Plato. So the Plato clubs, mostly in the Midwest, but, but, but dotted around all over the country, generally consisted of women of means uh, whose, whose husbands were, were the wealthier men of the uh, small towns. Uh, sometimes they included teachers and principals of schools and anyone who had interest in intellectual matters. And they would all get together to study Plato. They would, they would celebrate Plato's birthday with music and poetry. They would have guest speakers who would come around and, and one of the people that would travel on the circuit was a fellow by the name of Alexander Wilder, who's a fascinating character, who was the editor of Madame Blavatsky's Isis Unveiled, and who was also a, what they called then, eclectic doctor, which was really holistic medicine, because at the time that Alexander Wilder was practicing, allopathic medicine uh, sort of AMA medicine was very primitive and, and a little superstitious, whereas eclectic medicine was much more concerned with the use of healing herbs and was also concerned with how you're living, how your, your work is and your relationships and you're getting enough air, are you, are, you, are you keeping your house clean and those kind of concerns. And in fact, Wilder wrote some very interesting things about how uh, just attitude affects health. And so he said that one of the worst things that you can do for somebody's health is to watch them closely looking for signs of illness, which is something that is, is almost uh, ubiquitous in our society today, right? I mean, people wear watches that will tell them if something's wrong and they, there's cat litter that tells you that your cat's sick. And there's all kinds of, of programs that, that predict uh illness based on DNA and such. And according to Wilder, that was the worst thing that you could do for your health because what you needed was what he called a healthy neglect. And that didn't mean that you didn't wash or things like that. You took good care of yourself, but you you acted like the little immortal that you most of us feel like we are on some level, and you didn't worry about getting sick. So uh, Wilder was a great contributor to uh, American metaphysical religion, writing books that were in some ways similar to what would eventually become Manley Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages, surveying the whole story going back to e ancient Egypt and coming up through Greece and the Neoplatonists and then up into the Rosicrucians and, and such. So there was this, this vibrant community of, of people studying these matters and Plato became so popular that like big magazines that families would read on Sundays would carry long articles with big pictures and talking about how Plato's worth studying because even though he was pre-Christian, he anticipated and, and, and gave so much to Christianity. And newspapers would publish articles about new translations of Plato that were coming out and how exciting this was. So it was literally a fad. It was a hobby that people were into for quite some time, and it coexisted with spiritualism in a, such a strong sense that there are academics who have argued, I think persuasively, that, that Platonism so saturated culture in America 
that even the spiritualists were doing platonic ideas in, in, in their own uh, channeling. So um, what eventually stopped this was that German movement of philosophy slowly took over the, the colleges. And the idea was that the mystical side of Plato, the side that was uh, most discussed by the Neoplatonists, that this was, that's not the good part of Plato. That's superstitious nonsense. What we really need to look at is the politics and we need to look at the sociology of Plato, etc. And they really focused there and they made it almost impossible to study the Neoplatonists in academia for several generations because they were just looked upon as being utterly superstitious nonsense, not what they claimed to be, which was the only people who really knew what Plato was talking about because they were the continuance of the Platonic school. And they had the inside teachings that had never been made public. So the uh, new professors even picked on Thomas Johnson and they described him as being, uh, you know, really an amateur and he had devoted his life and was, I mean, his dream was to become a professor teaching Plato somewhere, but he, he was very bitter at the end of his life and wrote these sad letters with Alexander Wilder about uh, how the world had changed and about how the wrong side of Plato was being appreciated. Uh, to give another example of that, in his famous uh, writing, The Laws, uh, Plato said that there should be a ruling body of, of just a few people who would meet every day from when the first light of dawn touched the sky until the bottom of the sun uh, pulled up above the horizon, revealing the complete circle. They would only meet during that time, and they would interpret all laws, and they would make new laws if necessary. And who would they be? They would be Orphic priests, priests of the, of the mysteries of Orpheus, the worst kind of superstition, according to modern scholarship of the time. And so they argued, <clears throat> excuse me, that Plato was senile when he wrote that. They, they, they were so against it. We are now seeing actually a revival of Neoplatonic studies as people are realizing that, that they did seem to have a greater understanding of Plato than those who didn't receive the transmission of the teaching directly. What a fascinating chapter of American history. And it's interesting that you, you brought up Isis Unveiled and Madame Blavatsky, uh, who I gather considered herself a Platonist. Uh, her, influ her influence, though, ha has been, uh, even though the theosophical movement has dwindled, I heard not long ago there were maybe 5,000 uh, active theosophists now in the United States, but her influence uh, cannot be overestimated, in, in my opinion, because uh, hardly anybody can talk about uh, what we might think of as New Age ideas without invoking uh, concepts that were introduced to American thought by Madame Blavatsky and, and her followers. Yes, she an amazing woman. And, and, and really, again, another person at the crossroads of all of these these important influences so when she first comes to america she's she's here to write about spiritualism as a journalist and she begins being somewhat pro 
uh, spiritualism. And then she moves into a different arena as she begins to approach the launch of theosophy, where she feels that uh, spiritualism is, is dangerous because um, you don't know what, what spirit you're getting. And she believes that a lot of spirits were coming in there just to be mischievous. And, and so it was a dangerous kind of a practice. And instead, she put the focus on these uh, hidden masters, the, the ascended masters, if you will. And that idea of the white brotherhood, a term that she uses, not meaning white people, but purity, um, actually goes back to, a, to an author, an, a very popular American author of the colonial period uh, by the name of Lepard. And he was really into Rosicrucians and into secret masters. And he wrote a fictional short story that became uh, accepted as fact by many writers in Esoterica, including Manly Hall, uh, which was the story that a, a master of some kind appeared when the signers hesitated to sign the Declaration of independence because they realized they were declaring war essentially on the greatest empire on earth at that time and that suddenly out of nowhere this man who was dressed very strangely delivered this really stirring speech and they all went and signed and that story became it was changed like in in christian circles it was said to be um an angel in more esoteric circles, it was said to be the Comte de Saint-Germain or, uh, or some Rosicrucian master. And there is a lot of influence from um, Lepard to Blavatsky. And, and there's also influence on Blavatsky's Platonism from Alexander Wilder, because the sections in Isis Unveiled that, that have uh, a lot of, of Neoplatonic uh, ideas in them were mostly written by Alexander Wilder. And she actually admitted that and didn't feel any shame about it. She said that he was the, the person that she knew who understood it best, that she just wanted to use uh, his own writing because she couldn't really improve on it. So she, she was like this great synthesizer of all of this, this, these different influences and yet was bringing new things to the table, uh, things that she had learned in her travels in Asia, things that she had learned when she was in Cairo, and even down to um, the influence on her of, of uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph, who later became famous as somebody who supposedly tried to kill her in a magical operation by materializing a bullet in her heart. And she claimed that she had uh, repelled the attack and that he had therefore uh, committed suicide. And she had referred to him using the N-word at that time, apparently, if the story is true, it's somewhat apocryphal. It's very hard to tell what's true. Now, he's a huge influence as well in the 1800s. A man who uh, often passed for black, uh, was probably a mixture. He claimed to have all kinds of races in his heritage. And he started out also as a spiritualist. And then alienated the spiritualists when he declared that electricity was literally the power of God and other bold statements that people were not willing to accept at the time. He then traveled as a medium twice to Europe and there he claims to have encountered Rosicrucians who taught him 
uh, deep philosophy of, of metaphysics, came back to America and started self-publishing books about these teachings. Later in his life, he admitted that actually he had not met anyone that was that impressive who claimed to be Rosicrucian, and that the ideas that he was presenting were the same ideas that he had had before, but were ignored because he was just a nobody man of color. But once he said they were Rosicrucian, suddenly everybody was interested. He is a highly controversial figure, uh, but his influence on modern esoterics is, is incredible. He was one of the first people to really talk about the use of sex magic for manifestation. He was somebody who talked about the use of, of hashish in scrying uh, for past lives uh, and using mirrors uh, that were especially prepared, these magic mirrors. He actually made and sold these mirrors. He was a huge influence on the Rosicrucian movement in America and the uh, FRC, which still exists, uh, which was led by Clymer in the beginning, uh, was is really a direct lineage from him. And all the Rosicrucian practices in America have a lot to do with his teachings and a lot of uh, plagiarism occurred from his work. So he also had a lot of influence on English uh, metaphysicians and and we can see his influence on people like Aleister Crowley. So uh, even though Madame Blavatsky was against him, there was a lot of influence. And, and she's also interesting because, so for example, we're not going to get into any of the questions of her, her actions that may have been fraudulent involving the manifestation of letters and such from the hidden masters. But, but we can point out that whereas in the society, she was very condemning of this, this fascination with the use of hashish in esoterica. According to her close friend, Rawson, she herself had learned to use hashish in Cairo in order to scry for her past lives. And then over in the world of Thomas Johnson, the publisher of The Platonist, he had been a vice president of the Theosophical Society. And like many theosophists, when Madame Blavatsky left America for India, he became disillusioned and he was attracted to the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. Part of their teaching was that theosophy was not good for the West because it was a distillation of what they thought was Eastern nihilism, the lack of a soul, of an individual soul, Buddhism, as they understood it. And... And in fact, they were uh, concerned that American esotericism would be destroyed by movements like theosophy and the swamis like Vivekananda that were coming from India and having big influence and yoga. And so Thomas Johnson was attracted to this movement and he became the president of the Western chapter of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. And they would do these kind of courses by mail. And they, they had strange practices such as um, they were also involved in hashish, but used it in a very different way in a form of, of quote unquote sex magic that isn't very sexy, which is if a married couple wanted to conceive a child, they were told how to pick the right astrological time and, and how to keep the right meditative elevation during the process 
and to use a, a pill, a hashish pill, that the order provided that would elevate them into this ecstatic unity that would attract the highest possible soul to incarnation. And this is something that eventually uh, we see in the famous book by Aleister Crowley, Moonchild, about a ritual of trying to attract a high-level soul, a, a savior. And so in the East, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor was run by a woman named Josephine Aldridge. And she's a fascinating woman, too. Um, she ran a successful newspaper called The Occult World that was in, very influential in those days. And she was a great success in community organizing and, and all sorts of uh, community-minded efforts. She and her husband, William, they um, actually are the moving force behind the creation of public defenders. So the reason that people have a public defender if they can't afford to hire a lawyer in America is because of the Aldridges and their work to create that office. And she, by the way, an irony about the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor in the East is the brotherhood there was mostly women. And William and Josephine put their beliefs to, to work. They uh, created a mining operation, a town around a mining operation that was an absolute uh, uh, model of how to treat people. It had a great hospital. It had a great school. Black workers and white workers lived together and worked together. And they, they had this beautiful community that was, was you know, pay, really paid people well and took good care of them. And they were very successful. But unfortunately, no one imitated their good example. And ultimately, as they became older and tragedies uh, affected their lives, they simply gave everything to the workers. So they were a tremendous example of, of the esoteric put to work. Well, there were many other uh, attempts to form spiritual communes in the 19th century, most of which have uh, failed or uh, became converted, like I think the Oneida community, to uh, basically business ventures. Yes. Uh, Oneida was actually uh, Alexander Wilder, who we just mentioned earlier, was a a member of the Oneida community. And he had a terrible experience there. He, he, he didn't even like to talk about it. Uh, it was a strange community where the sexuality was controlled by the leader and there, they had some kind of weird ideas about eugenics. Um, but uh, eventually it was a very successful uh, business and then it was converted to that. Another example of that would be the town of Harmony and the community there, which is earlier and which was a strong influence on Frances Wright, when she initially visited that community, it was a great success. It was built by, I believe, German pietists who came over and that was their, their trade. They would build these beautiful towns. They were incredible craftsmen and carpenters. And so they would build the town and they would sell the whole town. And so this fellow Robert Dale wanted to to turn Harmony into an experimental community where everyone would live together and they would all support each other and they would hold uh, all possessions in, in common. And when she first visited, again, during the honeymoon phase, 
it seemed to her the answer to the problem of slavery and inspired her to create her own community, Neshoba, uh, which, as we said, was unfortunately in a swamp. But when she came back to Harmony a few months later, it was a disaster. Everybody was fighting. No one could get along. And it had the same problem that many such idealistic communities have. Uh, I remember speaking to John Trudell, uh, a great uh, uh, indigenous poet and activist who was part of the American Indian movement in the 1960s about the occupation of Alcatraz, that he was this DJ during. And he told me that at first it was the same pattern, that it was it was beautiful because the people that were there were, were idealistic and they were all helping each other. But then inevitably parasitical types were were attracted to the free food and the, the possessions in common and such. And then criminal elements were eventually a part of it. And this is the same thing that happened to Harmony and the town disbanded. So there were many efforts, but this goes way back in America because in very early Pennsylvania in the 1700s, we've got German pietist communities uh, coming together. We've got towns like Ephrata, where beautiful music was created, unlike any other music, uh, by somebody who was was very driven to recreate angelic music. And he he had special diets for his singers, and they had to live in a certain way, and, and everything was just this micromanaged. But people who visited from Europe to hear this music, who are great lovers of opera all reported that it was the most amazing music they ever heard. And even though we have the music written down, we can't really hear it because there aren't any people who have the preparation and training to do it properly. So this creation of these utopian communities is a constant American theme. Well, I suppose it's fair to say overall that uh, what your work has shown unequivocally for what it's worth is is that uh, from its very beginnings, from pre-colonial times right up to the present, there has been a, a wide tapestry of metaphysical thinking throughout the United States. Absolutely. Uh, that's the thing that was most surprising to me. And it's really the reason I wrote the book, because all of this new information that was coming out from uh, academia and was unavailable to most of us. We don't really know what they're doing out there and that these new books that cost 100 or 150 dollars to buy because they're meant for libraries and not really for consumers. And they're written in this high academic style that's difficult. Uh, those books are filled with amazing facts. And, and as I was exploring all these materials, starting out pulling on that thread of the Platonists and then finding this massive ball of yarn, I found just my book could have been two or three times larger. I mean, there are so many stories that I had to leave out that are just great, great stories. And, and I hope that my book will be an inspiration to writers. I hope people come along and they, 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 they correct my work and they expand it and uh, they really expose just how amazing the depth of all of this is because it's, uh, it's truly a, a heritage that most of us don't know we have. And the beauty of it is that it's truly a heritage of unity in diversity, of an appreciation of diversity, 
And of this idea that Emerson became so notorious and then ultimately so revered for, which he put roughly, if I may paraphrase, as why should we only have the revelations of the past? Why can we not have our own revelations right now? I mean, the divine is with us. Uh, here we are. Let's, let's have our own American religions. Let's have our own revelations. And to me, that's the, the absolute uh, American ideal that, that most of us have somewhere within us. And, I, and when talking about the division in this country, you can still see that on both sides of this divide, both sides are after a universal reformation. Both sides believe that, that if you adopt their spiritual perspective, that the country will become purified and greater and, and will change the entire world. And this is unalloyed original Rosicrucian ideas about universal reformation that have just taken these two very different tracks in America. And so I, I do think that it's ironic that, that both sides of this divide are seeking utopia. What it makes is for a very interesting dialogue, and I'm just delighted to be able to share your perspective with the New Thinking Aloud audience, Ronnie, and I think we should do another interview. We haven't even begun to touch 20th century metaphysics in, in, in America, so let's do that one, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, you're welcome back on this channel over and over again, because uh, I, uh, I can imagine that the uh, knowledge and wisdom isn't about to run dry for a very long time. There's a lot of stuff I don't get to talk about, because we're, we're focused on, on this particular book, so I would love that, and I also find your interviews to be wonderful, so thank you so much. I would I'd be very happy. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to have you back over and over again, Ronnie. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? On June 1st, we've just released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.